Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. Good to be with you. I'm going to ask that uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, that you open it to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14, continuing in our Titus series. If you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles in the, uh, the seats, underneath the seats in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word for, uh, uh, for your own, uh, we have those available at our Welcome Center, and we would love to give you a copy of God's Word. One thing that we learned very soon after moving here to South Dakota is that we have two seasons, right? And what are those two seasons? Winter and road construction, yes. How true that is. Uh, perhaps you, like me, have been frustrated many times, whether it be driving down 57th or Minnesota or 41st, and you have to wait in the long line of traffic to get through the construction zone. Perhaps you've been frustrated in the morning times getting your kids to school with the long delays, all of those things. Uh, we find to be an inconvenience, yet we endure those inconveniences because we know that the construction workers are doing what is good. We know that there are potholes that need to be fixed, that there are avenues that need to be widened. We know that our city is growing and more and more people are moving here. And for that very reason, the roads need to be bigger, the exits need to be more convenient. And so we endure the construction knowing that the end is going to be a good result. Ruth Graham, the wife of famous evangelist Billy Graham, saw this, this very scenario of road construction as a metaphor for her own Christian life, her own walk with Christ. And the story goes that once she was driving down a road that was undergoing construction and saw the dirt and saw the machinery and saw the construction that was going on, and she saw signs that said, construction ahead, detour ahead, sorry for the inconvenience. And she drove on for some time until finally she came to a sign that said, end of construction, thank you for your patience. When she passed away in 2007, by her instruction, this phrase was inscribed on her tombstone. She recognized that her whole life in Christ had been a life under construction. God was making her and shaping her and building her into what she should be, to be more like her Savior, Jesus Christ until finally, passing from this life into the next, she stood in the presence of her Savior, and that construction project was completed. For the past three weeks, uh, brothers and sisters, we've been blessed with messages from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, showing us how, how critical it is for us as Christians, as believers, to be rooted in sound doctrine. And it shows us how the gospel calls all of us, whether we be older men or younger men, older women, younger women, or even those who are bond servants, or in our context, those who are under authority, how important it is for us to live in such a way that the gospel is adorned in our lives. We are called to wear healthy doctrine like beautiful clothing so that the gospel 
is not reviled. However, and we know this, the struggle for us as believers is that this doesn't happen overnight. So often we fail to wear the gospel clothes that we ought to wear. And if there's one thing I've come to realize in my own experience, in my own Christian life, it's this, is that the more I grow in the knowledge of God, the more that I grow to know Him and love Him and experience the goodness of Him in my life, the more I come to realize just how much more I need to grow, just how much I fall short of where I ought to be. I want to be more pleasing and obedient to God. I want to love him more. I want to walk more in his ways. Yet I am keenly aware that I am not yet what I ought to be. Perhaps you've experienced these struggles in your own life. Perhaps words like this have come out of your mouth before. I don't read my Bible enough. I know I don't pray enough. I know I don't lead my family in worship like I should. I'm a sorry excuse for a Christian father. I'm a sorry excuse for a Christian mother or husband or wife. I'm a terrible friend. I so easily give in to temptation. I'm lazy and undisciplined. Friends, if you've uttered phrases like that before in your life, know that there is hope. There is a solution for the believer in Christ. And what is that solution? If we would live lives that adorn the gospel and conform to the commands that we see in Titus 2, verses 1 through 10, then then how do we get there? And my hope is that this passage before us today will help us see the purpose and the process of God's construction zone in the life of believers. So we're going to pray, and then I'm going to read the passage, and then we will look at this text together. Pray with me. God, your word says in the Psalms, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. So Lord, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts to do the good work of your spirit by your grace in our hearts and minds, to change our lives, to make us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, hear the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession." who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. So the things that I want us to see in the passage today are this. I want us to see that by grace, 
God is purifying His people now and preparing them for Christ's return. God is purifying His people now by grace and preparing them for Christ's return. And I want us to see three things. First, in verse 11, we're going to see that God's grace saves His people. His grace saves His people. Then in verse 12, I want us to see that God's grace sanctifies His people. And we will define what we mean by sanctifies there. And then in verses 13 and 14, God's grace sustains His people. So first, let's look at how God's grace saves His people in verse 11. And I want you to see these wonderful words on the page. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. See how this passage connects to what we just have been looking at for the past three weeks before in verses 1 through 10 with this word for. You could also translate this because, but we don't often in proper grammar in English begin paragraphs with the word because. This points back to these previous 10 verses Because all of the commands and all of the imperatives, all of the oughts and the shoulds of the previous 10 verses stated or implied find their basis here in what Paul is about to tell us. Why should older men be sober-minded and older women be reverent in their behavior? Why should young women love their husbands and children and younger men be self-controlled? Why should bond servants show all good faith to their masters and adorn the gospel well? It's because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's the reason right there. Parents, have you ever told your children to do something and they say, why? And you say, because I said so. I know I have. Because I said so. Now, that that is a good enough reason for a parent to give their child a command. Do this because I said so. I am your parent. I can tell you what to do. But how gracious it is that our God who has every right to say, because I said so, so often in his word, gives us the very basis for his commands. Do these things, friends, because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. If you're a Christian here today, if you're a follower of Christ by grace, why should you be sound in faith and live a life that adorns the gospel? It's because God's grace has appeared in your life and saved you. This phrase here highlights the reality of our salvation now. It's what theologians call the already. It's the present reality of our salvation. And with this, we think of the words of Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The grace of God has appeared in your life. And as we've learned from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, these past three weeks, friends, have you at times felt conviction as we've studied this word? Have you desired 
more and more to live a life that adorns the gospel, then friends, if you desire that, never let the truth of the gospel become cold in your heart. Never let the truth that you were once a miserable sinner, a miserable rebel, an enemy of God, dead in your sin, but God showed you mercy and incomprehensible grace. Never let that truth grow cold in your heart. We've sung of that this morning. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Friends, the truth of the gospel is, of grace is a lavish feast that is always before you to satisfy your hungry soul. In times of drought, spiritual drought and despair, discouragement, weariness of your own sin, preach the gospel to yourself. I was a dead sinner. I was a miserable, wretched sinner at enmity with God. And those words of Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Let that truth satisfy your hungry soul, friends. And while we rejoice in this salvation in our own lives, notice here that this salvation is not only for us individually or for one particular people group. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. Now, let's clarify this here for a minute. Are we saying that his salvation has come and everyone is saved? Of course, I'm asking a rhetorical question in a room like this of well-studied people in God's word. We know that not all are saved. We don't believe in universalism. But what is he talking about here when he says all people? He's not saying that all people everywhere, everybody in the world is saved. This phrase, all people, is used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to all types of people or different types of people and people groups. 1 Corinthians 9, 12 through 22, Paul states this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak, I have become all things to all people, that by all, my, all means I might save some. The, uh, the, the all people here in our passage today refers back to these first 10 verses of chapter 2 that Pastor Mike has been preaching on. Different types of people, old men, young men, older women, younger women, bond servants, 
And even by extension, if we look at the whole of Scripture and and in all of the Bible, we realize that it's talking about people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. We could go to Genesis chapter 12, where God gives His promise to Abraham that through him, all the families, all the tribes of the earth would be blessed. We could look at the Great Commission where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, all ethne, different ethnic groups. And then we see in Revelation chapter 7, this great picture of people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue gathered around the throne, giving praise to God and to the Lamb. Salvation is not for just one demographic or one people group. It's for all people. Christ came for all kinds of people. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight as we sing in the little children's song. And how true that is. Friends, have you experienced this work of grace in your life? Has the grace of God appeared bringing salvation for you, friends? Have you put your faith and trust in Christ alone? It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your education level. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. Children, you who are here today, if you have not experienced a work of grace in your heart, you are not too young to come to Jesus. Friends, if you're here today in your 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever your age may be, and you have not bowed the knee to Christ, it is not too late. And if you're here today and you've got sins in your past that you, you would tremble to confess to anyone, God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No matter your background, no matter your experience, no matter what you have done That offer of grace is made to you. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Why is this so amazing then? What makes this so amazing is that this diverse group of people from radically different backgrounds here in Crete are called to come together in this new community this church, and live radically different lives from the rest of the world. We are part of this new people. If you're here today in Christ, you are part of this new people, and you are called to live lives that adorn the gospel. And that's what brings us to our second point, that God's grace sanctifies His people. God's grace saves His people. God's grace sanctifies His people. So if verse 11 answers the why we should be sound in faith and live gospel-adorning lives, verse 12 tells us how this happens, how we live gospel-adorning lives. And the answer is the same. It is grace. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that trains us. One uh, pastor commentator puts it this way, where grace reigns, grace trains. If God's grace has saved you, 
God's grace is not going to leave you in your sin. He is going to train you. And so, what I want us to see here in this verse in particular, in verse 12, is what is known as the the doctrine of progressive sanctification. It's a biblical doctrine, and it speaks of the process by which we as Christians, if you put your faith, hope, and trust in Christ alone for salvation, if He's done a work of grace in your heart, it's the process by which He makes you more like Christ, teaching you to be obedient and holy. And this is a process. Perhaps you're here today as a new Christian or even an older Christian where you wonder, why do I keep on sinning? Why do I keep struggling with these sins? And if you're truly battling those sins and seeking God's freedom from those sins, know that this work of sanctification is taking place in your life. And this word here that we see for training could also be translated uh, disciplining. It's the word used for disciplining. It's the same language that we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. Note these verses. The writer of Hebrews says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us as we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good." that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So why is God in grace disciplining us, training us? It's so that we may share in His holiness, that our lives may yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God loves you enough, Christian, to not merely pay your sin debt, but to make you more like Himself. If you've been transformed by the grace of God, if you've been saved by the grace of God, God is now training you like a son or a daughter, disciplining you that you might be more like Him, that you might be more like your Savior, Jesus Christ. And for a season, this discipline seems painful, but it is going to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so we see here in Titus chapter 2 that this grace, if you're a Christian, is at work in our lives and it is training us. And in what ways? Note these ways here. First, it is teaching us that there is a renouncing, and secondly, that there is a living. So first, we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We are to reject those things that are opposed to God, reject those things that are opposed to His character. And we are to reject evil passions and desires of this world. 
And second, we are to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. So there is a turning from those things which are evil and opposed to God and a turning toward or a pursuit of those things that are good and right. And friends, this is, this is repentance. This is a life of repentance. It's something that we do when we turn to Christ for salvation, but it is something that we continue to do in our lives. Friends, if you're here today and you continue to struggle with sin as a believer, which is all of us as believers, the Christian life is a life of turning away from those sins, confessing them, repenting of them, and turning toward Christ and following Him. Note the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 3, 5 through 10. I reference this here. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of, it, of its creator. And this is what it means to renounce and to live. It's putting off and putting to death the ungodly practices of our old self, and putting on the new self. And this, friends, is a work of God's grace. Now, it's important here to note, what do we mean when we say grace is doing this in the life of a believer? Does this mean that I can sit on my couch and just say, I'm going to scroll through my phone. I'm just going to watch hours and hours of television. I'm going to do whatever I want, and I'm just going to wait for God's grace to just do its work. What part does human effort play in this? What part does our responsibility play in this? And mind you, this is all under the banner of grace, what I'm about to say. Does that mean is we as Christians can just do whatever we want and just wait for grace to do its work in our lives? I guess God is going to make me holy one day. Friends, we are, we are called to action. Scripture gives us these imperatives. We just saw them in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Be sober-minded, be dignified, be self-controlled, be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Be reverent. Don't be slanderers or slaves to much wine. Teach what is good. There's these imperatives to Scripture. We are called to action, friends. We are called to renounce and to live, to put off and to put on. There are things that we are called to do. And as Christians, we are called to take up our crosses and follow Christ. We're called to put to death the deeds of the body, and fight the good fight of faith. The 19th century pastor and theologian uh, J.C. Ryle wrote a 
great, wonderful book called Holiness, which I encourage you to read if you haven't read it. But he puts it this way, there is no holiness without warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought the fight. To be at peace with the world, the flesh and the devil, is to be at enmity with God and in the broad way that leads to destruction. We have no choice or option. We must either fight or be lost. We're called to warfare. We're called to fight. We're called to put sin to death. And the grace of God that trains us in that is the weapons for that warfare. God gives us the weapons and the strategy to fight those things. And note, we do this in the present age. Note again this already aspect to this. It's training us now. In the present age, this warfare, this fight is something that is going on right now. Faith Baptist Fellowship, October 15th. 2023, 9.30 in the morning, friends, we are at war. Not a war of flesh and blood, but we are at war, spiritual warfare against the flesh, the devil, and the world. And the grace of God that trains us and disciplines us and sanctifies us is the God-given power to fight, to wage spiritual warfare against the evils and temptations of this world against our own flesh, and against Satan. And it supplies us with the weapons to fight this battle. So believer, are you struggling with sin this morning? Are you feeling stagnant in your own spiritual life? And so often, periods like this in our lives happen when we simply don't take advantage of the ordinary means of grace. What do I mean by that? The ordinary means of grace are the things that God has given us to strengthen our faith. Studying His Word, being in prayer, in meditation, being with God's people in corporate worship, the body of Christ, accountability. All of those things, friends, are the ordinary means of grace. And now, I want to clarify, it doesn't mean that just do those things and all of your problems go away. But if you seek those things with a sincere heart, God, I want to know your word. Friends, I guarantee you, if you're struggling with a besetting sin right now, you will begin to see victory over that sin. If you seek accountability when the word says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Find a brother or sister in whom you can confide your struggle and pray with that brother and sister. Go to God's word in prayer. Take advantage of the ordinary things that God has given us. This is how he supplies the weapons for this warfare that we fight, friends. If you would know Christ and follow him and be obedient to him, and take advantage of the ordinary means of grace. Renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives is how we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In this present age, in this world that we live in, it makes us more like Christ now. 
but it also fuels our hope and our expectation for what is to come. And this brings us to our third point, that God's grace sustains His people. So saving grace, sanctifying grace, and now sustaining grace. And note this precious, blessed hope that we have. It begins in verse 13 with waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. As we are disciplined, as we are trained in this present age, we are waiting. And as we pursue Christ-likeness, the more we will long for Christ. We talk about this often, waiting for the return of Christ, waiting for the consummation of the age. But friends, if we would fan into flame the passions of our heart to see Christ, to see him come and make all things right, then we should pursue being like him. This is the blessed hope of which Paul is speaking here, the appearing of Christ and notice the interesting, the interesting connection here. In verse 11, it was the grace of God that appeared and brought us salvation. But we are now waiting for his appearing. And this is the, the not yet aspect of that theological uh, concept I gave you earlier. There's the already, it's the what's, what we're experiencing now, our present reality, yet we are waiting for Christ to come. We are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. So we have the already and the not yet. We are saved, and God's grace is working in us, and he is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives and upright lives and godly lives right now in the present age. But we do so with a blessed hope that Christ will come again that one day there will be an end to this earthly strife. There will be no more wars. There will be no more children murdered in vehicles or ripped from the womb. There will be no more strife or bitterness or anger. And our battle, our battle with sin will be done as we stand in the presence of our Savior forever. So we have this precious hope that we are waiting for and Friends, let this precious hope, this blessed hope, comfort you. Every Christian here today, friends, if you're in Christ, no matter your circumstances, you have a blessed hope that cannot be taken away. And I know likely that there are some of you going through very heavy, difficult trials right now in our church. I don't know all of them. But I do know this, friend, if you're in Christ, you have a blessed hope that cannot be taken away. You have a Savior who is going to come and make all things new. And the tears of our present sorrows will pass away, be wiped away forever. What we see then in verse 14 is this, is that God is purifying now for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It says, because Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. 
if you would submit to God's training in this present age and wait with great joy and expectation for the blessed hope to come, then friends, set your heart and mind on these precious truths. Preach these truths to yourself that Christ gave himself for us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. We are saved from the penalty of the law. Yes, friends, we do not now live under the law, yet we are not redeemed to be lawless. You see the connection here. God, Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. We're not under the law, we're under grace, but we are not redeemed to be lawless followers of Christ. We were redeemed from all lawlessness. So Christianity, friends, is not, not a religion of, I've got my ticket to heaven now, I can, I can do whatever I want. No, you were redeemed to not be lawless. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he lays out this precious promise of God uh, in, in Christ to them in chapter 6, and then he comes to chapter 7, verse 1, and he says this, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness in completion in the fear of God. So we have these promises. We were redeemed that we would see God's work in our lives completed, bringing holiness to completion. Christ gave himself, to purify, gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This phrase, a people for his own possession, we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Perhaps some of you know this. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were redeemed we were set apart. Christ laid down his life that he would purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people to belong to him who are zealous for good works. And that's what should characterize our lives, friends. Zeal for God's word. Zeal for obedience. Zeal for good works. And just note here, as we come to a close of the sermon today, note the move from the, the many to the one. Note how at the beginning it says, all people, bringing salvation for all people so that he would make, that he would, he would uh, bre- uh, excuse me, uh, purify for himself a people for his own possession. If you're a Christian here today, friends, you've been brought near to Christ by his precious blood. You have been saved so that you would be part of this new people, this new people that is being trained, this new people that is under construction, being trained and purified and disciplined and prepared for the blessed hope of heaven and Christ appearing I'll close with this. If you would be more like Christ, if you as a believer would be purified by your Savior, then submit yourself to his disciplining work. Submit yourself to his 
work of construction. Be sanctified by grace by taking advantage of the ordinary means of grace that he has given you. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, friends, and you are hungering and longing for God's grace, then we would love to speak with you. I would love to, Pastor Mike, any of the elders, anyone here who is following Christ would love to talk with you more about this grace of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and thank you for your grace. The grace that has appeared bringing salvation that all who come to you in faith believing might be saved. People from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue, young and old, men and women and children. We thank you for this marvelous, infinite, matchless grace that is freely bestowed on all who believe. God, today we pray for any here that are struggling in sin, that your grace would be at work in their lives to conform them more to the image of Christ. We pray that they would take advantage of the ordinary means of grace, of your word, of accountability, of study of the Bible, of the preaching of the word, and the gathering of the saints, of prayer, all of those things. And if there are any here today who are in their sin, who have not bowed the knee to Christ, would they know that your grace is sufficient? And God, as we wait now for Jesus, would you help us to set our hearts and mind, minds on this blessed living hope, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.